Welcome to Pushing Through. It is Wednesday, July 8th. I am Tate Frazier, and as always, I am joined by the kid, BJ Armstrong. And today we have a very special guest, a professor of cinema and media studies in the USC School of Cinematic Arts. He is notorious PhD, Dr. Todd Boyd. Welcome to Pushing Through. How are you doing, doctor? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We appreciate you hopping on. And BJ, he's very excited about this because you guys crossed paths a couple times in your life, but one time at Iowa, you're Detroit guys. So there's a lot of things to be discussed today, right, BJ? Oh, for sure, Doc. And I don't know how, I think last time we spoke, we're trying to figure out how we didn't see each other in Iowa. It's not, not, not many people of, <laughs> of, of color up there, but uh, we, we did miss each other. But we were both remarking about how our paths have been similar, you know, in Detroit, growing up in Detroit, going to Iowa, and now we're both out here living in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, talk about a little bit starting off here, you know, whenever I hear another guy from Detroit, share with us the experience of growing up in the Motor City and (laughs) were you a fan of the electrifying mojo? Oh, wow. (laughs) Oh, man. You're taking it back. Electrifying mojo was that dude, man. Um, I have a a vivid memory. It must have been like the summer of 1979, I think. And Mojo, for like three weeks, he kept playing um, this song, but he wouldn't give out any information on it. He wouldn't say who made it or anything. The song was bumping and, you know, I knew enough about music to know that it was some variation of George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic, but I didn't know which name they were going to go under. So I knew it was from that camp, but I didn't know what it was. And for three weeks at 12 o'clock every night, um, he would play this. And whatever I was doing, I had to be by the radio. Like, And the night that you know they announced um, the name of the song, Who Made It, it was like the Academy Awards for me. <laughs> I was like, yeah. And when he said George Clinton knee deep, I'm like, oh, man. So, yeah, I got real vivid memories of electrifying mojo and Detroit and what music meant, like, you know, just how important that was to me um, in my life at that time. Real vivid memories of all that. Well, I have to I have to say this. So now we're into the mojo. Did you have your Midnight Funk Association car? Because and because when when you are in water. Right, yep. you make waves. You make <laughs> waves. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Did you have your car? Did you have your car? I don't know that I ever got an official car, but unofficially, I definitely have one. <laughs> That's all that matters. <laughs> yeah, man. Mojo is a uh, Detroit legend, no doubt. As we always discuss on this uh, this podcast, BJ and I, we talk about the the intersection right between the music and you know the, the guys that end up playing basketball like BJ. But BJ, if you ask him, he'll tell you you know his first affinity is music. And you mentioned the funk, you know what I mean? And, and that time period, the BJ, we, we say that every single podcast, if you're in water, make waves. That relationship to music, you know, it, it's so important to shape a, a period of time. And we're in a, you know, a, quite a period right now. So it, how much are you relying on music uh, right now in, in your life to, to get through the daily struggle of, you know, dealing with the pandemic and obviously dealing with all the race relations that are going on in this country as well? I mean, you know, um, music is such a, just a central part of my identity of my life. And it has been as long as I can remember. I mean, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a house with a a father who loved music. You know, my father was 
a bebop guy. He loved Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, but he liked, you know, music in general. So, um, you know, Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Miles Davis, Ray Charles. I mean, he had a lot of music and he played it. And he also liked movies. So growing up in the 70s, you know, my father was one of those cats who felt like, you know, the rating system didn't really apply. I'm going to introduce you to some, you know, as he would say, grown man shit. I'm going <laughs> to be like, you know, Shaft and Superfly and the Mac. when I'm really young. Um, and the music to all those films, you know, were so important. And my father, my stepmother, they had a huge record collection. And so, like, you know, when nobody was around, like, that was my thing. I'm like, you know, listening to music, all types of music, to the point that I can't imagine not being able to, access music and eventually I was able to make it a part of you know my professional life in terms of you know the things I've written about and lecture about jazz to you know uh rap music bebop to hip-hop you know everything in between soul funk you know mm. uh Frank Sinatra I mean whatever I mean I, I just I love music and to me when I get up every morning, like I usually have a, a jazz concert at the crib. It's just me <laughs> and the music, but you know, that's how I do it. Um, it gets me going. Um, you know, it's, it's something like, you know, cats in the locker room before the game, trying to get their mind right, get hyped and go play. That's how I approach the world. The same way for me, it's like all about the music in my car. Um, I mean, I'm just surrounded by it. So in a lot of ways, music to me is just like, you know, a limb on your body. Like, you know, if you lose your hand, something's not right, something's missing. So without music to me, it's like something's missing. But fortunately, there's so much good music from such a long period of time to sustain you in times like this when, you know, you really can't do much else. You've, you know, most of your, your, your work and things and you talk about this culture, talk to us about hip hop. What songs or what group, what era really just attracted you know you to the culture of that that genre of music when it came out there in the late 70s early 80s you know um i mean i always think about you know my sort of talents if you will you know stem from my ability as a public speaker i started speaking publicly when I was 12 years old. I've been doing this for the majority of my life. And so I grew up like as a speaker listening to other speakers. Um, so, you know, my father introduced me to Malcolm X. I heard Martin Luther King speak, but I also listened to, you know, regular dudes in Detroit, like who weren't famous or professional or successful, just, you know, talk shit. Right. I found I found rhythm in the way that they talked. I, I really found an interest in like how people say certain things, use certain phrases, what have you. Um, and so, you know, rap or hip hop, you know, however somebody wants to uh, describe it or, or the way they want to, you know, label it. Um, when people started rapping over beats, to me, that was just like a, a logical extension of what I was already paying attention to. So, you know, I'm listening to a cat like Gil Scott Heron at the same time that I'm hearing the Sugar Hill Gang. Mm -hmm. And when the Sugar Hill Gang drops in 1979, I remember 
like listening to the song and everybody was like, that's not really a song because they're just talking. And I'm like, nah, nah, that's cool. And so I made it my business to learn the whole ride. And I was competitive enough that I wanted to learn it before anybody else I knew learned it so I could spit. Um, and everybody else would be like, whoa, whoa, where'd you get that from? So, I mean, from the very beginning, you know, Rapper's Delight, um, also Curtis Blow, Christmas Rapping. Um, I mentioned Gil Scott Heron, who's really not a rapper, but I heard this Gil Scott Heron track, B-Movie, where he's breaking down Ronald Reagan, and I'm like, okay, I can, I can deal with this. And then what really did it for me in the summer of 82, um, I heard Africa Bombada, Soul Sonic Force, uh, Planet Rock, <laughs> and then I heard Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five with the message featuring Millie Mel. Mm. And it was really the message that did it for me because the message was like a great song. It was bumping. It was like great music, but it was political. It was, you know, guys uh, who were talking about like what was going on in the streets, what was going on in society. So there was a critique, but it was also musical. And I recognized at that moment how much you could communicate through music and that music could be funky. It could inspire you. It could motivate you. It could make you want to bob your head and pat your feet, but it could, it could also educate you. And so I would say uh, Melly Mel, Grandmaster Flash, The Furious Five, the message, that's the song that really set me off. Doc, now that you said that, Melly Mel is, <laughs> that's the song, you know, don't push me, you know, because <laughs> I am close to the edge right now. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there's so much going on, so much of, you know, so many, you know, lyrics and consciousness and things that are in the music. You know, I've been waiting when you came, when you coming on, I was so excited when you said, you know, you would come on. Something about this time, this movement, what's going on here in in America feels different. This feels different. But Doc, how do we make sure that this isn't just a moment in time and that it's a movement? And what, what do you see from your perspective being an expert in this subject matter? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question because I've been um, saying to people, you know, for the last month, um, you know, I, I've lost count of the number of interviews I did in the month of June talking about this subject in the broadest terms. But what I've been saying to people is, you know, we've seen moments like this before, but the moments are not always sustained. Like, you know, for a minute, people were in the streets protesting and this was the top story. Even a few weeks later, it's no longer the top story. It might still be in the top three or the top five, but it's no longer number one. A few weeks ago, it was number one. So, you know, I hear people talking about like dealing with systemic racism and I appreciate their commentary, but I have to say to them, and I guess this is what happens when you get to be an OG, you have to like kind of pull people's coats. It's like, you're not going to end systemic racism in three months. Um, it's going to take a long-term dedication and commitment there's going to be some frustration. There's going to be starts and stops. There are going to be days when you get discouraged, but if you're really serious, you're going to have to stick to it and really um, make sure that it becomes part of your life going forward. It's not the kind of thing that you're going to solve in three months and then just everything's going to be wonderful from there. People have been fighting for this, you know, longer than all of us have been alive. 
um, for, for many, many years. And so it's really about dedication, um, um, sticking with um, the issue, even though it may not be the number one priority. Um, I mean, I, I would in some ways compare it, if I may, to the length of a basketball season, right? You're playing an NBA you got 82 games, and if you're fortunate enough, you get the playoffs, and maybe you make it to the finals. You you know what I'm talking about. You've been on this journey. Right. And I'm sure you could, you know, uh, talk about how maybe 20 games in, it feels different than it does 40 games in or 60 games in or when you get to the conference finals. And, you know, what may seem like really intense in one moment in another moment may not seem that intense. So how do you maintain that focus so that you don't just like excel during the first half of the season and then the second half of the season you fall off? Like you have to maintain it. You have to develop a rhythm and approach and momentum. I think you could apply the same ideas to dealing with social justice and racial issues. You have to find a way to sustain this over the long haul because it's not the kind of thing that's going to just suddenly disappear and people no longer have to deal with it anymore. And you compare it to a basketball game, uh, Dr. Boyd, and you know, a lot of the players, that, a lot of the people that are being asked about these issues are basketball players, ironically enough, and they're being asked to be experts on this topic. And I mean, you are an expert because you know the study of race and popular culture, you're, you're doing that endowment and you're working on these things, you're going through these issues every single day. So you're more prepared to have those conversations, right? You know, with, with people that want to have those conversations. But for these NBA players, it seems like there's an expectation for them to, like you said, solve systematic racism in three months. It's and and now we have the option to put the the names on the back of the jerseys. Just the athlete in general and the NBA athlete. What is do you think is the duty of them as far as supporting the movement and supporting the message? And you know how far does it go? Um, because it's it's a very it's a slippery slope and a, and a sticky situation all around. Obviously for for everyone involved individually as players, how much they want to speak up and all those things. Yes, sir. Um, you know, again, a, a good point. Um, what I really appreciate is the fact that, you know, we're seeing um, a contemporary generation of NBA players and other athletes um, speak up about this issue. And in the age of social media, when somebody speaks up, you know, particularly if they're visible, they have a lot of followers so they can reach a lot of people. Um, you know, I would explain it something like this. Um, I get asked a lot of times about issues pertaining to the game of basketball. I've written books about the game of basketball. I can say that, you know, I would compare my knowledge uh, on the game of basketball to anybody currently alive, all right? But I'm going to amend that and say I cannot tell you what it feels like to play in an NBA game. I, I can't tell you that because I never did it. BJ can tell you that. I can't tell you that. I can talk about the history of the game. I can talk about the culture of the game. And I can talk about that, I feel, with, you know, the best of them. Uh, and I'm not bragging or patting myself on the back. This is the work I do. Mm -hmm. um, and I've tried to be able to do it at a high level. I can't tell you what it's like to play in the NBA. I can't tell you what it's like to win an NBA title. Um, I can't tell you what it's like to be picked to play in the All-Star game because I've never done those things. So when I 
hear players talk about those things, I'm all ears because I'm learning something that I personally cannot experience and have not experienced myself. Conversely, while people were playing in the NBA, this is what I was doing. I was developing this voice. I was uh, lecturing and writing articles and consulting and producing and doing all the things that I do. And I come at it from another angle. To me, the strength is when you can combine those things. When you can combine you know, visibility, having a platform, having a sincere dedication to the issues, and at the same time, connect with people who deal with these sorts of things from a professional standpoint and who do it for a living with a long history behind that, then you're building you know, on strength. You don't put together a team where everybody on the team can do the exact same thing, right? Mm -hmm. You don't put together a team of uh, just great ball handlers and nobody else on the team can do anything else but handle the basketball because uh, you're only playing with one basketball. So when you put a team together, you are putting together complementary pieces in the interest of building something stronger. The individual, um, you know, connected with the next individual, strength builds strength. Or to quote Wu-Tang, we form like Voltron, right? Mm. Um, that's what it's about, right? Okay. So taking that knowledge and that expertise and linking it with someone who has the dedication and the platform can, I think, be an official uh, and especially uh, powerful combination and collaboration of resources that can have a huge impact. Quick break to get a word from our sponsor, Raycon. Whether you're working from home or working on your fitness, you want what you're listening to to be what you're listening to. Everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds. But before you go dropping hundreds of dollars on a pair, you need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. You already know Raycon earbuds start at about half the price of other premium wireless earbuds on the market and that they sound just as amazing as the other top audio brands you know. Their newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, are the best ones yet with six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design that gives you a nice noise-isolating fit. Raycom's wireless earbuds are so comfortable, perfect for conference calls or binging podcasts like this one, like Pushing Through, Binge It. You've heard us talk about the company was co-founded by Ray J and celebrities like Snoop Dogg, Cardi B, Brandy, and J.R. Smith. They are all obsessed with Raycons. Pick up a pair and see what the hype is all about. Get 50% off your order at buyraycon.com slash pushing. That's buyraycon.com slash pushing for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash pushing. Back to the podcast. You know, so much now we have talking, you know, talking heads on television. We have talking radio. We have all of these people with so many opinions. From your perspective, what is your view on this cultural conversation that we're seeing so often on television and radio and all of these platforms. And what do you take from this or what is your perspective on seeing all of these people just giving their opinions and people like yourself and people who, you know, they've dedicated their lives to this subject matter. What is your perspective when watching this on mainstream on the mainstream media today? Well, you know, I think um, when we talk about the mainstream media now, it's bigger than it's ever been uh, because, you know, it used to just be, say, newspapers and magazines. And then mm -hmm. later, 
you know, you add television, radio um, is a part of it. But now we also have, you know, Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, et cetera, other places where people can sort of, you know, get, um, get their message out to the public. It's interesting because um, in theory, you would think everybody should have a voice, right? In theory, that sounds good. But the reality is not everybody is prepared to have a voice. Right? Mm, that's a great You're point. Granted a voice, what sort of preparation have you made and how do you use that voice? Are you responsible with that platform you have? Are you irresponsible? Are you informed? I mean, you know, um, I watch people uh, on television. I hear people making comments. Some of these people are informed, some of them aren't. Uh, some people know what they're talking about, some don't. Um, sometimes the media doesn't do a good enough job of identifying the right people. If you fit into a certain demographic, you're represented. If you fit into another demographic, you're probably invisible. So I really think it comes down to not so much having the platform, but how you're using that platform. Um, not so much, you know, you have a right to say something as um, in, you have a right to say something as opposed to you have something to say of substance. Just because you have a right to say something doesn't mean what you say is going to be of substance, not necessarily going to be value. Some people are just talking. So to me, how do you use that platform? How do you use that voice? We see a lot of people saying a lot of things. Some of it's ignorant. Some of it's dumb. Uh, some of it's meaningless. And then some of it's profound and poignant and valuable. So I think we need the ability in this society now with all this uh, media available to us, we need the ability to distinguish what's valuable and useful from what's just conversation. I mean, it's just like, you know, we sometimes idolize this this idea of a barbershop, you know, in black communities, um, you know, long tradition about, you know, the barbershop, you know, LeBron uh, has his show where they use that model. And, you know, you go to a barbershop and there's all kind of people in the barbershop saying all sorts of things. Some of it's funny. Um, some of it's ignorant. Um, you know, some of it's profound. Everything said in the barbershop is not going to be valuable, but you as the individual have to be able to distinguish between what's of value and what's not. So I think you could apply that idea to the culture at large. And if you look at the sports shows, right, the sports media, the way things are set up when you see like a first take and you see Shannon and Skip when they're going at it, the, the, the conversation now without sports is the cultural conversation. It is about what is going on in society. So now we have sports pundits who are now, you know, you know, conver you know, having conversations about the cultural conversation at large. And for the majority of the sports, you know, prognosticators that are out there, they happen to be white guys. And uh, so now they're in uncomfortable positions or they're refusing to have those conversations. So just from that vantage point, watching it and, and bearing witness to it, it, one, it shows there obviously needs to be more voices, you know, that represent the players that are in a lot of these leagues. And two, you know, what is it just just witnessing it happen? Do, do you think there will be a shift in the, in the actual people that go into the business or get the opportunities because of this? Because some people have been called out because of that. Well, you know, as I think about your question, um, 
if I can maybe remix it just a little bit. Yeah, remix it, please. It, it takes me, it takes me in a direction that's related, but maybe a bit outside the lane, but I'm gonna try and bring it back. <laughs> so a few weeks ago, uh the coach at Clemson, uh Devo Sweeney. Sweeney. Yep. Um was making a series of comments relative to the, you know, circumstances, you know, we've been dealing with um, certainly since the death of George Floyd, if not longer. Right. Mm -hmm. And to be honest with you, I'm, I'm listening to Davo Sweeney and um, I began thinking, you know, I'm, I'm a professor at one of the elite universities in the country. Right. Always had a very close connection to the, you know, athletes um, uh, on campus in various ways and, you know, been connected and close to the whole sports thing for a very, very long time. So this this is my life. And I'm listening to Dabo Sweeney and I keep thinking, this guy's a coach at a university. He makes more money than everybody else in the state. The majority of his players are black. And he knows absolutely nothing about black history and culture, zero. And I kept thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful to say, before we pay you $9 million a year to like lead and manage these young black men, is it wrong to say that you need to spend some time learning about these people's history and their culture um, before you're allowed to make all this money? Because honestly, um, you know, you would probably still be back in Alabama somewhere if it were not for these black athletes that have made your life so luxurious. So is it too much to say when a Mike Gundy or a Dabo Sweeney says something ignorant or does something ignorant around racial issues that maybe there needs to be a higher set of qualifications before they can, like, you know, have an influence over the lives of these young black men? to kind of circle back, I guess I would say the same thing, you know, in terms of the sports media, like yeah. you're going to comment about this. I mean, black culture has always been connected. Like you don't stop being black because you're an athlete or because you're a rapper or because you're a, a movie star. You don't stop being black when you do those things. It's always been a connection. I mean, when I got to USC in 92, one of the things I wanted to do and, you know, I've been able to put it together is connect film, music, sports, art, television, fashion, the culture. Everybody now talks about the culture. They use this phrase for the culture. I've been doing this professionally for 30 years for the <laughs> culture before that was ever even a phrase, mm -hmm. right? So in the same way, you'd like to see that same thing so that when some sportscaster or sports commentator speaks on an issue pertaining to black people, they have somewhat of an ability to talk about the issues beyond the sport itself. But without that knowledge, without that information, you get a lot of uh, objectionable comments, uh, misinformation, and in some cases, overtly uh, racist statements. So I think what we need to do, which I don't have any belief that this is going to happen, but one can hope. I think what we need to do is require more of the people who exist in these spaces and who have power in these spaces, require more of them um, as it pertains to black people, 
black history, black culture, and a broader understanding of race as it applies to the sport in question. You, you know, Doc, um, you know, you're talking about the culture in that sense. And, and I, you know, I can recall, I remember when Allen Iverson came into the league. That was one of my favorite moments, right? That was one of my moments uh, when I was playing in that era when he came into the league because you saw this energy. You saw the, you know, where suddenly now, you know, you, 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 you know, when he came in and he, he brought this different energy that kind of t- took the NBA aback a little bit. But that's always been there. I mean, you, you know, I, I remember my, you know, my dad was, you know, he loved Earl of Pearl and, you know, you had Clyde Frazier and, you know, you had the doctor and, you know, world be free. You had all of these, you know, George Gerving, you know, he, you know, he had a certain Great energy, kid. you know, all these guys. But would you say Allen Iverson in this modern era, was he one of the first to really bring that energy that we're discussing here today to the NBA where it became kind of in the forefront? No doubt about it. I mean, um, Allen Iverson is one of the most uh, iconic players in NBA history. Um, you mentioned a lot of the guys, you know, from the seventies and, you know, I was fortunate enough to be growing up and be introduced to the NBA during that time. So, you know, Earl of Pearl, um, it took me a minute to realize that when people were talking about black Jesus, they were talking about <laughs> Earl of Pearl. <laughs> that was the same person. I didn't realize that. And, um, you know, we know how religious black people are. If you're going to call somebody Jesus, uh, that's, that's serious, right? Um, you know, Dr. J um, with the fro and the whole, you know, approach to the game and like, that's funk. That's what we were talking about with, right. with Mojo and George Clinton, that era, the Iceman, you know, Detroit Cat, um, Iceberg Slim, uh, that whole bit. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the foundation, that's the root. 20 years later, you get a guy like Allen Iverson who comes along as hip hop is in the process of really taking over mainstream American culture, right? But it's still controversial in the 1990s. So here's a guy in Allen Iverson, you know, who has spent time um, in prison for something that was clearly unjust. These are the issues rappers are talking about. These are the issues people are talking about in society. Those issues are still with us now. Here's a guy who comes along um, in his style. He's wearing like, you know, a lot of tattoos, which at the time was not so popular. Uh, He has a hip hop look. I mean, he's sagging, oversized um, clothes. I mean, he, he looks like a rapper. <laughs> if you didn't know any, if you didn't know any better, if you didn't know anything about uh, uh, the NBA, and you were, let's say, from a foreign country, and you came to America, and you saw Allen Iverson, you might think he was a rapper. Right. Um, you know, so he represented, I think, the very same thing that Doc and Iceman and, and Earl of Pearl and those guys represented from that generation, bringing together the music, the attitude. I mean, everybody always refers to Iverson as a rookie, um, you know, when Mike goes out to guard him and gets crossed up. Um, everybody refers to that. I mean, that was 
such a signature moment. It's one play. It's one play in a regular season game. Like if you think about it for what it is, it doesn't seem on the surface to be that big a deal, but everybody who loves the game and the culture remembers that moment because you saw the guy who had the crown on his head and then you had this young guy who's like, I respect that crown on your head, but I want to put it on my head. And you have to love that. You have to love that for a young guy like that to demonstrate that he was willing to go to that level. And in that moment, Mike came up short. And then one day I'm listening to AI and he says, you know, everybody talks about that shot. But what I remember is even after doing all that, Mike still almost blocked the shot. So it's like, you know, when you think about the nuances of the game of basketball and so much of that is cultural. To me, this is like talking about, you know, Freddie Hubbard's solo on Herbie Hancock's Maiden Voyage. When you really get down into the intricate details, you can really appreciate what's going on. So Iverson, I think, at multiple levels was really important because he brought all those cultural strands together in one place, and he represented an attitude. He represented a mood. He represented a vibe. He came to represent a culture, and I think his status as a cultural icon is about basketball, but it's also about, you know, the culture um, with a capital C. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, you you kept using this word attitude, and that to me is what embodies hip-hop. It's the attitude that the music gives you when you embody the music itself. You know, you we talked about uh, Melly Mel, and you talk mm -hmm. about all of these great, iconic hip-hop artists but I remember Allen Iverson in particular, he had this attitude that I just, I applauded him. Um, and he was one of my favorite, you know, Bubba Chuck um, was just one of my favorite. And I just remember that moment. And I just said, you know, there's like certain things that I remember. And I just remember how he made, you know, he made me feel, you know, and he was younger than me, but I just thought, you know what? Because I recognize him because I had seen so many guys like him in the city of Detroit. And all of a sudden he brought that energy. And uh, it was one of the most beautiful things I've seen in, uh, in my career. Well, that, that attitude and that that energy and you, you got a chance to experience it firsthand. I mean, you know, there's a quote that's attributed to Miles Davis and um, the quote, which I'm perhaps paraphrasing, because I don't always remember the percentages, but Miles said something to the effect of, when you're playing jazz, 20% um, of it is about playing the right notes, but 80% of it is the attitude of the motherfucker playing it. That's what Miles said. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so that, that's what we're talking about, the attitude <laughs> of the motherfucker playing it, right? Um, you know, you need skills to step on the basketball court. Like, you need that, right? There's a lot of guys with skills. If you make it to that level, I'm not telling you that you don't know. If you make it to that level, you have some skills. Mm -hmm. But not everybody with that talent has that attitude. And so what Miles said, I think, definitely applies to Allen Iverson as well. Like, it's the attitude of the motherfucker playing it. That's what's real. <laughs> and, you know, that way, I, you know, here you've been great, and uh, we could talk all day, and uh, we won't hold you too much longer, but I just got to ask you a little bit about basketball, and I know that's your passion as well. And uh, 
what's your feelings about this restart and all of the things that's going and now they're about to, especially in particular basketball, what's your feelings about uh, that the NBA is, you know, what they're doing and uh, the players coming down there? I mean, this is a real uh, unusual situation. I mean, we've never really seen anything like this. I mean, we've seen, you know, lockouts, but we've never seen a situation where you're going to take the teams that are left and put them in a bubble and, you know, all these sort of restrictions and safety considerations. And, you know, every day you hear, you know, three or four more guys testing positive for COVID. Um, some people saying they won't go. Um, you know, I mean, I saw, I can't remember who it was. Somebody posted a picture yesterday of uh, the meal they received when they got to uh, – <laughs> Yeah, Troy Daniels, uh, that, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Troy Daniels, exactly. And that didn't look uh, – definitely didn't look like Toscano, BJ. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he definitely didn't look like it came from uh, Toscano. Uh, I mean, so, you know, I mean, there's a part of me, like, I like basketball. I want to see it. Um, I mean, it's gotten so bad. I was watching uh, – I was watching, like, Buffalo and Cleveland from 1977 on NBA TV uh, last night. That's how bad it is. I'm watching, you know, uh, games from, you know, a very, very long time ago. Yeah, Bob McAdoo yeah. highlights. Yeah. Yes, sir. Bob McAdoo <laughs> wasn't even on the team anymore. He at least he <laughs> I'm watching Randy Smith. Uh, oh, wow. Clyde, Clyde Frazier's playing for Cleveland. That's that's what's happening. Austin Carr is like, you know, that's how deep it is. Um, <laughs> I want to see basketball. So, you know, I mean, I don't know what it's going to look like. Um, this is a strange arrangement. You know, no fans in the stands. Um, one of the first things I thought about was, you know, what are they going to do about all the trash talking on the court? Because if the average fan heard what was really being said out there on the floor, they might be shocked. And then that right. was addressed. Mm. Uh, we have the issue about, you know, Black Lives Matter being, you know, posted on the floor and, the statements you can put on your jerseys and, you know, some sort of pushback uh, on some of that. I mean, I guess part of me feels like we are in this really unusual moment. I've never seen anything like it in my life. I mean, society's been virtually shut down for the last four or five months. Uh, we don't know how much longer this is going to last. Um, you know, the uncertainty is is stressful. And so maybe if you bring back something familiar and it works, you can ease some of the stress. Um, I hope it works. Maybe the momentum of, you know, having a successful relaunch of the NBA in the bubble can produce some energy that might be beneficial to the rest of society. Who knows? Um, I'd like to see basketball. This is a strange situation. There's a lot of potential problems. I mean, it could get started and maybe not be able to make it all the way through. Who knows? But I think it's probably worth a try. Um, you know, I think maybe Adam Silver is ambivalent and maybe there's some owners with a lot of authority who are saying, no, you need to push through and try and make this happen. Um, it's going to be interesting. And I think, you know, in the same way that the last several months have been really uncertain, this is also uncertain. Um, but, you know, I mean, I hope that at some point we can get back to, if not what was considered normal before, something approximating uh, new normal. And, um, you know, the sooner that can happen, the better. And if 
bringing the NBA back is a move in that direction. And, you know, hopefully it will benefit those involved and maybe have some ancillary benefit in society as well. Well, Dr. Boyd, we appreciate you coming on Pushing Through and sharing your thoughts. We we definitely want to have you come back on and uh, as these things progress. And obviously, as basketball comes back, if we have actual basketball to talk about, we'd love to talk you know, basketball with you because we'd, we'd love to do that on the show. So uh, please come back and thanks so much for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I could, you know, talk to you guys the rest of the day. It's not like I can go anyplace. <laughs> that's, how, that's how we are, too. That's why we're doing all these podcasts. Well, uh, well, I have so much, but Doc... You know, thank you again for coming on. You know, it's always great to have a, a Detroit native here and um, University of Iowa. I don't know how we missed each other there. And great. now we're out here in Los Angeles and uh, you got the greatest nickname, the Notorious <laughs> PhD. That, 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 in honor of you today, I'm wearing my Notorious shirt. Thank you. I appreciate and, uh, it. No, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, please come back you're always welcome here and uh, hopefully next time or anytime we can be talking about basketball because I want to get into this basketball you you put your resume out there against anybody so now you know in in the competitive spirit we got to go and talk a little basketball I, 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 qual- I qualified it though I, quali- I, I made sure not to step on no toes <laughs> no it's okay that, that, it's okay you know it's a, it's, it's a competitive spirit it's like hip-hop it's competitive so uh no that's great and uh Appreciate it. Thanks so much for your perspective and in sharing and enlightenment. And this was great. And uh, again, anytime, anything we could do, you're always a friend here. You're always welcome here. And thanks again for coming on. Hey, again, uh, thanks for having me. This was great. Um, I look forward to future opportunities and, um, you know, that uh, elite club that we're part of, Detroit University, <laughs> Iowa, and L.A., um, you know, anytime we can, like, you know, connect and build on that, then I'm for it. So thanks for having me. All right, and then we're just going to throw it out there. Anytime you need any stand-ins for your next project, your next movie, Tate and I are available. Yeah, okay. You know? okay. And uh, I love we're the working wood. for free. We're working for free. Okay. We're working for free. Okay. We, we, we love the wood. We love all your projects. Oh, you. If you need a couple of stand-ins, a couple of guys just standing there, we're, we're here. We're ready okay. for you. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. I appreciate that. All right. <laughs>